0: Good morning once again. Can uh, I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 20? Now, as we come to Matthew 20 in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, as we have said, Jesus and his disciples are, at this point, leaving Jericho on their way to Jerusalem for the final events, events that will lead up to the Lord's crucifixion. So we're not very far from the cross at this point. Maybe a few weeks. Chapter 21 opens up four days before the cross, the triumphal entry. So, getting very close. Now, we read in verse 29. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. (laughs) What if Jesus came to you one day and said, what do you want me to do for you? Just like he said to these two guys. What would you say? What is the greatest desire in your heart? Now you're thinking maybe some of you, that's a dumb question. That's never going to happen. Okay? That Jesus would, you know, they'd come to me. And I'm not saying he's going to come to you bodily. I'm just saying, though, what if the Lord spoke to your heart? and said, what do you want me to do for you? And people would say, look, that's not going to happen. Well, it happened for Solomon. Remember how that the Lord appeared to him in a dream one time and said to him, here's exactly what it says out of 1 Kings 3, God said to him, ask, what shall I give you? Now Solomon was a young king and he asked for wisdom that he might better lead God's people. A very noble request and God gave him that request and blessed him with some other things as well, but that was Solomon's request. You remember David's request in Psalm 27, verse 4. David said, One thing I have desired, and that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, David was a king, but I think if David had his choice, he would have rather have been a priest. I think David would have wanted to hang out in the tabernacle area and just be close to God uh, all the time. You remember in our study from last week, how that James and John asked the Lord for political greatness in the coming kingdom. Remember, they said to him, Lord, grant our request that we might sit one on your right hand, the other on your left in your kingdom. So they wanted political power and greatness in the kingdom. And of course, Moses, in Exodus 33, he asked God that he might behold his glory. And so again, it's not as far-fetched a question as you may think, all right? What would you ask for if God promised to grant you one request? I mean, what would it be? What do you want more than anything else? And let me say this to you. Whatever you would ask for would reveal quite a bit what's in your heart and what you really value in this life. I mean, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is going to be also. So whatever you really value is going to have control of your heart. It's going to dominate what you want, what you, how you think. And it's good to ask yourself this question. What would I really ask for if the Lord said to me, I'll grant you one request? What would I ask for? And be honest. Well, I'd ask for long life or great wealth or, or success in my profession. Well, you're being honest. Okay. Some of you might have more of an altruistic kind of a bent. You might say, well, I'd ask for world peace or the end of all hunger and disease. Well, that's very noble. Okay. Some of you might be saying, I know what I asked for. I asked that God would save everybody in the whole world. Well, that's a great request, but you can't have that one. Because God's not going to force everyone to be saved uh, against their free will. That's well, a good request. Now, what do these two guys ask for? Well, they asked for a physical healing, that the Lord would open their eyes so that they could see. And Jesus granted their request, and how did they respond? They did what? They followed him. They followed him. And I think that brings up an important point. If the Lord did grant your, did your request, whatever it might be, would you respond by following him? In other words, whatever this thing is that you would ask him, would it bring you closer to him? Or ultimately, would it drive you farther from him? Which begs the question, would God even give you something that would take you away from him? Uh, I don't believe so. In fact, James tells us that every gift God gives to his kids is perfect. It's perfect which means it's designed by God to make you all you need to be for him. It's designed to be perfect for what you need at that moment. Uh, It's designed to to prepare you for his service and that he might bless you and do for you all he desires to do for you. Now, if that's the case, and of course it is, if God's gifts to us are always perfect for what we need, then if the Lord did come to you one day, and said, look, ask me whatever you want. One request, I'll give it to you. I think a wise man or woman would say, you know what, Lord, you know what's best. I don't know what's best for my life. I know what I want. It's not necessarily what I need. You know what's best for my life. I'm going to let you choose what you're going to give me. Wouldn't that be probably the wisest thing to do? And so... I guess I need to ask you the question, do you simply trust the sovereignty and wisdom of God? Do you trust God's sovereignty and wisdom enough to accept from him? Whatever he chooses to give you as the perfect gift for you, your life at that moment, to prepare you, equip you, and, and use you for the work he's called you to do, even if that thing he gives you initially is painful, Even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's unpleasant at the time, do you trust God that ultimately His ways are best, His gifts are perfect, and if you receive it as a gift from God, He will use it in your life to bring good? If we're talking about the gifts that God wants to give us, right? Not what I want from God, but God, what do you want to give me? Let's start with the most important gift, the one He wants everyone to have, and that's the gift of eternal life. You don't have to turn to these, but remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What is a gift of God? Salvation. It's a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest anyone should boast. Now we understand, as evangelicals, that salvation is not a wage to be earned. It's a gift to be received. We understand that. In fact, Paul says in Romans 6.23, what we earn is judgment. The wages of sin is death, judgment. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The beautiful thing about a gift is, you don't have to do anything to receive it. Just reach out and receive it, right? Now, here's the thing. Is this gift limited to certain groups of people? Jesus said in John 3.16, God loves the whole world and is offering the whole world eternal life as a gift, that we would not have to perish in hell, but have everlasting life. God is offering this gift to everyone. Now, the thing about it is, in our culture, in many churches, they do teach a kind of a works-based righteousness. In the church I grew up in, uh, it was all about what you did for God to earn you God's favor and ultimately eternal life. And when I got, got older and read the Bible and realized that's not what God said, all right? That's not what God said. He said that salvation was a free gift and that he was offering it to the whole world. Now, that's a blessing because that means anybody in the world could be saved regardless of how bad their lives have been. In John chapter 4, Jesus purposely uh, goes up to Samaria and sits down by a well because he had an appointment there with a gal that was ordained by the Father before the foundation of the world. He sits down, and in the course of time, here she comes to draw water. He engages her in a conversation, and he tells her that what she really is thirsting for is living water. She was no moral woman. She had been married and divorced five times was now living with a man. She was empty inside. She was thirsting for something. She thought physical relationships, that was what was going to satisfy her. She came to find out no man had been able to satisfy her yet. She was still empty inside. And Jesus said, what you really need is living water, which was just a, a, a metaphor for himself, and eternal life. What you really need is me and the eternal life that only I can give. But Jesus went out of his way to approach an immoral woman. And of course, when his disciples came, because they had gone into the village to buy food, when they saw him talking to a Samaritan who were hated by the Jews because they were half Jew, half Gentile, but not only a Samaritan, but a woman, no rabbi talked to a woman in public. And then in a moral woman on top of it, I mean, Jesus was breaking all kinds of barriers, and he was doing it to show that God is no respecter of persons, that God loves all people and wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's the first gift God wants for all human beings. He wants to give to you the gift of eternal life. Now, once you're saved, know this, salvation is an awesome thing, isn't it? But we haven't been saved just to be saved. We have been saved to serve. And after we're saved, we need another gift in our lives that we might be able to do the work God is calling us to do. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can turn to Luke 11. We'll look at this one together. The disciples came to Jesus one day and said, Look, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And so Jesus gives them a model prayer in Luke chapter 11. But then he says in verse 13, he said, if you then being evil, speaking of his disciples, and just what he meant by that was you being fallen human beings with a depraved nature, and yet you still give good gifts to your children, right? If your kid asks you for an egg, you don't give him a scorpion. If he asks you for uh, bread, you don't give him a rock, you know, chewing this kid kind of a thing. You know, you even we as fallen individuals know how to give our kids good things, Jesus said, how much more so your heavenly Father was not, of course, evil. He's pure and holy. How much more so will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And here, guys, he's not talking about giving them the Holy Spirit in the sense of salvation. Because the Bible says, in fact, Paul the Apostle said in Romans 8 9, that everyone who has received Christ and is truly born again has the Holy Spirit in them. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you're not a Christian. I don't care what you call yourself. The Spirit of God has to be in you. That happens when you give your heart to Christ. But there's another gift of the Spirit God wants to give us once we're saved. It's called the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes upon us. He's in us because we're saved. But we, we ask Him for the Spirit to come upon us. That's the empowering for service that we need to do the work He's calling us to do. Look, every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them, but not every Christian has the Holy Spirit upon them. The disciples, they knew the Lord. Okay, They walked with him for three and a half years. They heard his words. They knew the gospel cold. So Jesus said, look, you've got the information. You've walked with me for three and a half years. You know the gospel. You're not ready to share the gospel until you are endued with power from on high. And that power was poured out on the day of Pentecost as the Spirit came upon them And they were empowered to then go forth and do the work God had called them to do. This created quite a stir. A lot of pilgrims in town for this feast. They heard the mighty rushing wind noise. Uh, They ran to where it seemed to be coming from. Saw the apostles speaking in these other dialects. Because these guys were from all around the known world, these pilgrims. They understood what the apostles were saying. They were praising God, declaring his wonderful works. And then Peter stands up and gives the first spirit-filled message of the church age. And it cut them to the heart with conviction. And in chapter 2, after Peter was done, they said to him, Men and brethren, what must we do? And in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said, here's what you do. You repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's salvation. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the empowering for service. The gift that Peter talks about here is not the gift of salvation where the Spirit would come in them. That would happen automatically at salvation. He was talking about how once a person is saved, they need the Spirit of God to come upon them. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascended back to the Father. He said, go back to Jerusalem, wait there, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll receive power. The Greek word is dunamis. We get our word dynamic from that Greek word. You'll receive dynamic power to go forth into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, and proclaim the good news. You'll have the power to do the work I'm calling you to do. How are we going to do the work of God without that power? Hey, these were simple Galileans, many of them fishermen. And he was sending them into all the world, Athens, Rome, Alexandria, some of the greatest centers of learning and culture in the whole world, and these simple fishermen, we're going to be able to preach to these people and and they were going to get saved? No way. And in the upper room Jesus said to them, "Look, I'm going away soon. This is the night before his crucifixion. And where I'm going, you can't follow me, not yet. But look, I'm calling you to do a great work. I'm not going to let you go out there and do it alone. I'm going to send you another helper, another comforter, the Spirit of God, who will come upon you and empower you for the work I'm calling you to do. And that's what happened at Pentecost. But it didn't just end there. For every Christian who has received Christ, the Spirit is inside of them. But we need the Spirit of God upon us to have the power to be effective for the Lord. Now, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the gift that God gives us that we receive the power to serve him. But then we have the individual gifts of the Holy Spirit which become the tools. And every Christian receives gifts from the Holy Holy Spirit when they get saved. In fact, Paul the Apostle said, covet earnestly the best gifts. What's the best gifts? It depends on what the situation is. Every situation that we find ourselves in where we minister might require a different gift. It's not wrong to pray constantly, Lord, will you give to me the gifts I need for this ministry opportunity? You've opened the door for another opportunity to serve you over here. Will you give me the gifts I need? Now, there are nine gifts mentioned in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit. There might be others, but we know of nine. And they're like, we'll say, primary colors on a painter's palette. Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, God mixes up a unique blend and gives each believer a unique blending of gifts. So for each one of us, God will take uh, this gift a little bit here and maybe this gift uh, in a stronger intensity, mix them all together and give to each one of us the perfect gifts that we need for the work he's calling us to do. Now, a lot of Christians say, I don't know what my gifts are. You say, we all have gifts? Yes, all all christians have gifts i don't know what they are what what are my gifts well ask the lord ask the lord but i'll give you a little hint what's in your heart to do well the folks in the back table there they have a real heart to reach out to the homeless i believe among other things god has given them the gift of mercy when i see somebody who has such a burden for the disadvantaged, the down and out, the homeless as god does right god said that i have a heart for those that are you know The strangers, the widows, the orphans, those that are down and out, those that are disadvantaged. Our God is a God of mercy and compassion. And when I see people who have that kind of heart for the homeless, I say they have the gift of mercy, among other things, no doubt. When a person goes up to me and says, you know, I don't know what my gift is. I say, what do you you love to do? Man, I love to get into the Word. I love to pick it apart. I love to look at every little minutia of the Word. You're a teacher, because only us teachers, you know, want to dig that deep, okay? A lot of people that listen to a teacher that you know and really is gets into the word and, and dissects it and looks at every little thing and the and the uh, the tenses of the verbs and so on and sometimes people that don't have that gift they love the word, but it might be a little too much for them. but we teachers love to dig into the word and so a person that loves to do that has the gift of teaching, but every one of us has gifts now. God wants to use each one of us. We have been saved to serve. There's no such thing as a Christian who's been saved to sit or to be an observer. We're all, now there are many in the body who do that. But you know what? You will never, let me say this to you. If you really want to have the power of the Spirit flowing through your life into others around you, you have to be using your gifts. You have to be plugged into ministry. It's like a circuit that's been completed, it allows the power to flow. You've got to be plugged into your local church and look. I don't care. You say, well, I don't know where to start. Start wherever there's a need. A lot of our folks who are in other ministries today started in the nursery. They started in the sound ministry, uh, setting up chairs. I mean, uh, just look around and see where the need is. And as you can get in there, God will direct you to other things. And eventually he'll wind up bringing you to the place he wants and the ministry he's really called you to do. But don't despise the day of small things. Because those initial ministries are helping you to learn how to be a servant, learn how to be uh, faithful, uh, honing your gifts in some way, that God will eventually lead you to the ministry he's called you to. But we know the gifts of the Spirit are important. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established. The word built is built up. It's the same thing in Ephesians 4 where Paul said God has given to his people gifts to be used to build up the body. That's why it's so important to use your gifts because we need them. We need you to use your gifts because that builds up the church and will build up you too. When people say to me, man, I feel so empty inside and so dry. Are you involved in ministry somewhere? No, I'm not involved. Well, that's part of the problem. Because the more you're involved in ministry, the more you're getting out of yourself, the more you feel a sense of purpose, the more you're using God's the gifts He's given you. And you know what it's like? A circuit that's been completed? A circuit that's been completed allows the power to flow, right? Into that tool or whatever it might be. You'll never be a closed circuit in the sense where God's power is flowing and your life is kind of lighting up and, and and being used for his glory if you're not plugged into a local church and using your gifts. Very important, okay? Peter said, First Peter 4.10, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But, he said to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy and the laying on of hands of the eldership. We can neglect these gifts, and often do. We neglect them when we get so self-focused that we're just so depressed or thinking of ourselves, we're not thinking about serving others. And it's kind of a catch-22. The more depressed we get, the less we want to serve. The less we serve, the more depressed and self-focused we become. So you can neglect the gifts, and the body suffers, but so does your walk. All right, let's make it even more personal. Have you ever thought about your spouse being a gift from God? My spouse? Yes, your spouse. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Have you ever thought about your spouse, listen to me now, being a gift from God? Listen. In hermeneutics, which is the science of Bible interpretation, there is something called the law of first mention. We've talked about this. Which says whenever a major concept first appears in the Bible, whether you're talking about marriage or atonement or worship, study that passage because it becomes the prototype for understanding that concept all the way through the scriptures and how it works its way out in your life. The first time marriage appears in the scriptures is Genesis 2, right? And, and God made Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam became a living soul. Then God brought all the animals that God had created to Adam to be named, right? And Adam's looking and as they're walking by, two by two, because they, male and female, he noticed every one of the animals had a partner, but He saw nobody that was like himself. He had no partner. So the Lord knocked him out, you know, gave him some anesthesia, whatever. Adam was out. And the Lord took from Adam's side something, a rib or some DNA, it doesn't really matter. And he made from that a woman. And then when Adam woke up, God, listen to me, God brought Eve to Adam and gave her to him as a gift to be his wife. Given to be received not to be remade. The problem with so many marriages today, it's a cultural thing, guys. As a culture, we have gotten so self-focused where everything is about my ultimate happiness. We have done this, especially in marriage. And when two people get married, oftentimes one or both will then try to remake their spouse into their image and after their likeness for the purpose of the spouse making them as happy as possible and that's a lot of people's goal in marriage marriage is all about me taking this lump of a guy i'm married to i gotta fix this dude man he is in bad shape i gotta remake this guy because i want him to make me happy so i gotta make him and mold him into my image that's where conflict comes in that's where problems arise Instead, as Christians, we should say, God, you have given me my spouse to mold me into what you want me to be. See? They are to be received, not remade. In other words, you know, my husband, he's kind of lazy, he's a little selfish. Okay, so what is that forcing you to be? i got to be more unselfish because what he's not doing, i got to do. Okay, you know what? God will deal with him. But he's teaching you, and sometimes it's through the negative traits he's got, And sometimes God uses the positive ones as well to teach us. Maybe he's a very giving guy and you're the selfish one. And you see the way he treats others and how he gives of himself to you and to others. And that causes you to say, you know, I I really want to be more like that. And of course, God works in both directions. As the wife is teaching her husband things, God is using him to teach her things. But the idea is that Marriage is, you have to see marriage as a sovereign work of God. And the question is, do you believe in the sovereignty of God in your marriage? Do you see your spouse as a gift from God to help you be all what God wants you to be, which is really the, more and more like Jesus? Or do you see your role in marriage as you're responsible to remake this person into your image because their whole purpose in life is to make you happy? I mean, too many couples look at their spouses in terms of what they want them to be instead of what they need, what God has given them, because he knows they need this person. I want something for my spouse. I want them to be a certain way. God says, no, I've given you them because you need to learn certain things, and this person will teach them to you. I like what columnist and author Bob Just said, and I actually have corresponded with Bob a couple times over some issues that he had raised in an article that were really good. I wanted to get his input, but... Here's what Bob just said on this subject. He said, and I quote, he said, when Hollywood started the mass drumbeat for easy divorce, their message was simple. Marriage is about happiness. And so if you are not happy, then you are in a bad marriage. And so it's better to divorce your spouse and seek a good marriage because then you'll be happy. Hollywood put self at the center and made it the focus of marriage. Bob goes on. He said, marriage is not really about happiness. I made that statement on HBO's Bill Maurer show and practically got booed out of the studio by the shocked audience. He said, but many decades of lies about marriage made my statement too hard to hear. After all, says pop culture, if marriage is not about your spouse making you happy, why get married? It's actually a, good, a great question if only we dared to really ask it properly. I believe the traditional culture has the answer. You get married to learn what real love is by way of your spouse or your children, if you have any. But, and here's the clincher, if and when you do discover what real love for your spouse is, you also find real happiness and joy inside yourself, the kind no one can take away from you, end quote. Somebody sent me an article about one of our soldiers returning from, from Afghanistan And he was in some kind of an attack or an explosion that took his arms and legs. Young guy, newly married, young gal. His wife is just a young gal. And it shows her, you know, with a smile on her face, carrying her husband on her back up the stairs, taking care of his needs, being by his side. Now, if God had said to her, would this make you happy if I brought your husband back to you, you know, with no arms and legs? She, of course, would have said, no, that wouldn't make me happy. But he's using it to teach her the meaning of true love, which is commitment, self-sacrifice. I'll tell you what, that little gal, from what I saw in those pictures, wow. And I have to believe that as she, just is the wife God's called her to be, he's going to produce in her all kinds of things like joy and satisfaction and fulfillment, things that she never could have gotten by direct pursuit, God will work in her through a situation that she maybe not would have never have wanted, but God knew she needed. Alright, we talked about the gift of a spouse. I don't want to leave the singles out. There is another gift called the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness, right? Remember what Paul said? Now Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 was talking to the church there and said, look, I wish that uh, you could all remain single like me. He said in verse 7, for I wish that all men were even as I myself am, single. But each one has his own gift from God. Paul was saying his singleness was a gift from God. But not everybody has that gift. Marriage is the norm. Marriage is the norm. But for some people, God has given to them a gift of singleness. Now, if you're single, you might be terrified right now because, you know, you want to be married. And you're thinking, huh, what if God has given me the gift of singleness? I want to get married. Well, let me tell you something. If you really want to get married that bad, you, you don't have to get the singleness. Because if you did, you'd be content to remain single. Okay? So hang in there. All right? Don't rush it. You might marry Mr. Wrong. Who, when you say I do, becomes Mr. Right. And, of course, then talk about learning things. All right? Um, now, listen. Sometimes God will give this gift to a person after they've been married. This was Paul's case. We know that Paul was married at one time because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So what happened? Either Paul's wife divorced him when he got, became a Christian, because in Judaism, uh, women had very few rights, especially when it came to divorce. But one, uh, one legal ground a woman had to divorce her Jewish husband was if he defected from Judaism. And so when Paul became a Christian, she could have divorced him or possibly she died. And that left Paul single, and God at that point gave Paul the gift of singleness so that he could serve God without any distractions. That, that is the beauty. You know, and I, I apologize to you singles because so much of the church is built around marriage and family, isn't it? And sometimes you, you singles feel like the third man out, or the odd man out, I should say. You know, where it's like you're just attached to the church, but you're really not, you know, everything is marriage and family. Well, that shouldn't be our singles are some of our most valuable resources because you guys have the ability to serve God full-time with all your heart. You feel God wants you to go on a mission trip to Africa, you don't have to ask anybody but God, and you go. I mean, that is a blessing from the Lord. That's why Paul said, I wish you could all remain like me because I have the freedom to serve God without any distraction. I don't have to worry about making a wife happy, which is not wrong if you're married. But if you can stay single to serve God with all your time and heart, Paul said that's even better. But look it, can I say this to the marriage? Because I know that a lot of married Christians mean well. Please leave the single people alone. <laughs> Don't say, oh, you're single. Um, why? Don't you want to be married? something wrong with you? Look, they are... <laughs> Being single... It doesn't mean you're weird or, or you're a misfit. It just means this is where God has you right now. And that's a blessing to use your singleness for the glory of God. So we we married people need to understand, look, this, this sometimes God will call a person to be single for the rest of their life. It doesn't make them weird. It just, this is the call of God. This is the gifting God has given to them. All right? I'll give you one more. I mean, there's no doubt many others. But I'll give you one that please don't throw anything at me because this is one that many people can't even imagine. How about the gift of adversity? How about the gift of adversity? To even call adversity a gift from God would cause most people to think, I'm nuts. I know the world would think a person was nuts who who suggested that, that God would actually give adversity to his people and it be a gift, but even in the church today, again, because the church has become so man-centered and self-focused, we don't see adversity as being a gift from God. But remember what Job said, a man who was no stranger to suffering? He said to his wife who couldn't wrap her mind around the concept that God would allow this to happen to Job, and she said, you know, why not you just curse God and die with all your commitment to God? Look at what he's done to you. He said to her, you're a foolish woman. He said, should we only accept good from God and not adversity? Job saw his adversity as a gift from God. Do you trust the sovereignty and wisdom of God enough to accept from him whatever he sends your way and know that it's the best gift for your life at that moment to equip you and teach you and prepare you for the work that God is calling you to, even if that thing that he gives you even if it's hurtful or unpleasant at the time, do you trust that he is using that thing to equip you, to mold you into the image of Christ, that you might ultimately be a more effective servant for his glory? I mean, if you were a Christian living in Washington, Illinois, when that tornado came through and destroyed most of your town, maybe even your house, in any stretch of your imagination, could you thank God for allowing it? could you see it as a gift from God? I know a lot of people would absolutely be horrified to hear me even suggest that. But I'll tell you what, I've seen the Christians in Washington on TV. I've seen how they've mobilized. I've seen how they have reached out to their neighbors, unsaved neighbors. I've seen God do a tremendous work through this thing. What the devil intends for evil, God often uses for good. If we're of the mindset that understands that this life, you know, we think of blessings and all, that it just means material things, health, and, and contentment right now in this life. Here's the thing. God is working for our eternal best, not really our earthly comforts. And if God has to sacrifice some earthly comforts to bring us to a place where he can use us, that our ultimate rewards in heaven would be all the more, he will do that because that's how God is working. He's working for the eternal. We are living in time. And because of it, we often think, if any bad or painful things come into our life, either that's of the devil or God hates me, or God's not a good God, we don't stop and say, you know, Lord, your word says that all things are working together for my good, because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. And therefore, if everything is working for my good, if everything comes as, a, as a, a gift from your sovereign hand, that means, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, I need to be thankful in all things, not necessarily for all things. I can't thank God for adversity, but I can thank God in the adversity because he's using it to teach me things. I know he's using it to build me. You know, the more you know God, the longer you walk with him, and if your heart is really wanting to know him in truth, the more you're going to discover that God will often use painful circumstances to bring about his ultimate will. And if you didn't know God, if you didn't know his character, if you weren't confident in his love, his wisdom, and his sovereignty then you would think he is not a good God, not a loving God, that he's a cruel God because of what he allows in some of his people's lives to bring them to a place where he can really use them. It's all about knowing our God. Let me read to you, and I'll close with this. Let me read to you a true story. This comes out of Jim Simbel's book, Fresh Power. He said, back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svia Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with another young Scandinavian couple, the Eriksons, and the four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Nadalara, they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svia Flood, a tiny woman of only four foot eight inches tall, decided that if this was the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. And in fact, she was successful. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided that they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Svia flood remained near Nadalora to go on alone. Then of all things, Svia found herself pregnant In the middle of that primitive wilderness, when the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Svia Flood was already weak from bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave, buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. With that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself. Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a mysterious malady and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries, who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie, and eventually brought her back to the United States at age three. This family loved the little girl, and were afraid that if they returned to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home home country, and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hurst enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then a son. In time, her husband became the president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And Aggie was intrigued to find so much Scandinavian heritage there. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read a word of it. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden the photo stopped her cold. There in a a primitive setting was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words Svia Flood. Aggie jumped in her car and went straight for a college faculty member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded The instructor summarized the story. It was about missionaries who had come to Nadalora long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of a young mother, the one little African boy who had been led to Christ, and how after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children led their parents to Christ, and even the chief had become a Christian. Today, there were 600 Christian believers in that one village, all because of the sacrifice of David and Svia Flood. For the hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with with the gift of a vacation to Sweden. There, Aggie sought to find a real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. He had recently suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had only one rule in his family, never mention the name of God because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and half-sister, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now, but you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said tentatively. He turned and began to cry. "Ina," he said, I never meant to give you away. That's all right, Papa, she replied, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. He turned his face back to the wall. Aggie stroked his face and then continued, undaunted. Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. It's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama didn't die in vain. The little boy you won to the Lord grew up to win his whole village to Jesus Christ. The one seed you planted kept growing and growing. Today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body relaxed. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to God, the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm moments together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America, and within a few weeks, David Flood had gone into eternity. A few years later, the hearths were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given from the nation of Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. The superintendent of the national church, representing some 110,000 baptized believers, spoke eloquently of the gospel spread in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterward if he had ever heard of David and Svia Flood. Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated into English. It was Svia Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced her in a long, sobbing hug. Then he continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is, is the most famous person in our history. In time, that is exactly what Aggie Hurst and her husband did. They were welcomed by cheering throngs of villagers, and even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12, verse 24, where Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. He then followed with Psalm 126, verse 5, Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. There are many Christians that God wants to use by bringing adversity into their lives. But like David Flood, they turn against God, become angry, don't see what he's trying to do, don't have enough confidence in his sovereignty or in his love or in his goodness, that he is truly working all things together for good. Not maybe their temporal good and comfort but their eternal blessing and reward. We as Christians need to cultivate a whole different mindset when it comes to adversity and suffering. We need to understand that everything that comes to us comes to us from the hand of a loving God as a gift that will work a perfect work in all of our lives in making us more like Jesus and using us more for God's glory, which will reap for us eternal rewards god is all about working for our eternal best not so much our earthly comfort so may god give us the grace to understand he has many gifts he wants to give us sometimes the things that are the most painful are really the things that are the greatest gifts in our lives may god give us grace to trust our god enough to receive from him whatever he chooses to give us to receive it with thanksgiving and to be open to allowing it to teach us the things God wants to teach us. So may God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. And Lord, you told us that when we gave our lives to Jesus, you would lead us in the right paths, not necessarily the easiest paths, but the right paths for our life to bring you the most glory, and to bring us the most rewards for eternity. Father, forgive us for falling into this very carnal, self-focused mentality that you exist to bless me with material things, with earthly happiness. And that's pretty much it. Give us grace, Lord, to go deeper than that, to understand that adversity is the chisel, that you use to chisel out of our lives the image of Christ. It's a good thing. Not always a pleasant thing, but a good thing. Give us grace, Lord, to be mature enough to receive these things with joy and thanksgiving. For we ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.